This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning, it's Monday, it's the 22nd of November, and I'm Tabitha McIntosh here in my new permanent home, Breakfast Slot. Today I'm talking about the history of educational metaphors. Are we blank slates? Is learning a rainforest? What if it's a bicycle, or even a kebab? Is the curriculum like sourdough, or is it more like a chupa? Does it matter which metaphors we choose? Listen in, join in. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. There's a level of musical drama that I'm not sure metaphors require, but maybe they do. Right, so uh, Edgy Twitter has spent the last couple of weeks brawling over educational metaphors. Is the mind a blank slate? Is it a flawed blank slate? What does a flawed blank slate mean? Uh, is, Is human weakness and the likelihood to not do homework original sin? Is it useful to use original sin? Do we need to argue about the metaphor that we've used? Does it need to get into the national press? Do we need to go on and on and on about it? Well, I've got lots to tell you about this. It's kind of all over the place. I've got lots of input for you, but it's interesting, I promise. <laughs> Matt Ben David is already saying no. I'm not sure what, what they're saying no to, but I'm pretty sure it's everything. Matt, by the end of this, I promise you, you'll be converted to realizing that you use embedded metaphor all the time. It's just that we're going to try and be more thoughtful about the metaphor we're using. Um, Here's a quick tip for getting your students writing to sound more sophisticated. Just age some of the metaphors. So I get lots of kids coming into class with their list of discourse markers for discussing what authors are doing in text. And uh, quite often they're fond of saying highlighting. You know, Shakespeare highlights the theme of blood by by using da da da, whatever, blood, probably. So I tell them, just make your metaphor older. Now it turns out that highlighting actually is a 17th century word that comes from art. But when I hear highlighting, I think bright yellow markers that were first invented in 1961. So I'm like, if we're using a pen metaphor there and a textual operation metaphor, just make it an 18th century one. So extra points for underlined, even more points for underscored. When you say underscored, you sound even cleverer than you did when you said underlined. They're both 18th century um, words. They both, <laughs> Matt's saying, ooh, bougie, exactly. And Matt, that's the trick of English is, is really, you've just moved to level nine merely by saying underscored instead of, a, <laughs> instead of highlighted. It's not really about facts. It's about the style of the metaphors you're using in English, which is why I did English. And yes, as you say, no wonder you find it so hard. I'm going to have some input from um, a Russian teacher who's very angry with me for even raising the question. But understandably, because he finds himself constantly linguistically and metaphorically at sea with metaphors embedded in the speaking practices and, and cognitive habits of English speakers. So we'll look at some learning metaphors from around the world and how they are incredibly different depending on your language family. Um, Now, the field of metaphor studies, history fans, emerged after the publication in 1980 of a book called Metaphors We Live By, by George Lakoff and Mark Johnson. And though now it's an incredibly established field, um, a truism that people trot through the history of every time they they write a book or an article on the subject. At the time, it was really quite startling and revelatory. Um, So I'm going to tell you quite a lot about that and take you through their thinking. Apologies to anyone listening, um, for example, Oli Cav, who knows all about this already. But I think most of us don't. The the thing about the way we use metaphors in human cognition is we don't notice they're, they're there at all. So they said they were essentially supplying an alternative account in which human experience and understanding rather than objective truth played the central role, an experientialist approach. I imagine any science teachers listening um, should be rightfully outraged at this point that the way in which we transmit information, we'll go to that metaphor in a minute, is is experiential rather than (laughs) fact-based. All right, Matt, good point. Uh, Matt says, I would be if I understood the words. Yeah, there's a a lot of big leaps, aren't there? Let me uh, take this slowly. So 
They write rather beautifully, and I'm just going to read you a little bit here. The concepts that govern our thought are not just matters of the intellect. They also govern our everyday functioning down to the most mundane details. Our concepts structure what we perceive, how we get around the world, and how we relate to other people. Our conceptual system thus plays a central role in defining our everyday realities. Yeah, that sounds very abstruse. So I'm going to go straight to the first example they give, because I was engaged in in a Twitter discussion yesterday that a lot of people would have characterized as a war of some kind. And one of the things they do to first make us understand in this book how metaphors shape our experience of reality, as well as come from live reality, is look at the argument is war metaphor. So they give examples. He attacked every weak point in my argument. His criticisms were right on target. I demolished his argument. I've never won an argument with him. You disagree? Okay, shoot. If you use that strategy, he'll wipe you out. He shot down all of my arguments. As they say, it's important to see that we don't just talk about arguments in terms of war. We can actually win or lose arguments. We see the person we are arguing with as an opponent. We attack his or her position and we defend our own. We gain and lose ground. We plan and use strategies. Try to imagine a culture where arguments are not viewed in terms of war, where no one wins or loses, where there's no sense of attacking or defending, gaining or losing ground. Imagine a culture where an argument is viewed as a dance. There's some some interesting alternative metaphors that I, I hope you will reject out of hand, but then think about that we'll see later. But as a dance then, the participants are seen as performers and the goal is to perform in a balanced and aesthetically pleasing way. In such a culture, people will view arguments differently, experience them differently, carry them out differently and talk about them differently. But we will probably not view them as arguing at all. Um, <laughs> so they quote Reddy, observing that um, some of the underlying metaphors, the most crucial ones that go in the English language with our understanding of knowledge and what we're doing in the classroom, because that's our focus here, um, are the idea of language metaphors as containers with which we transfer information that is somehow objective and empirical and real, where metaphors are delivery mechanisms for transferring that information. So in this model, which is metaphoric, ideas or meanings are objects, linguistic expressions are containers, and communication is sending. That sounds very abstract, but once we start thinking about it in quite specific linguistic examples, we realize that structures everything we say, the idea that I, a teacher, am giving students information through the mechanism of the explanation um, or the metaphor or the rhetorical language which I use and I know Matt has done an enormous amount of work on explanation um, so now maybe we should do a close analysis of, of Matt's explanation blogs and look at the metaphors they're using. So the speaker puts ideas into words, ideas, objects, words, containers and sends them along a conduit to a hearer who takes the ideas, objects out of the words containers. So the, this guy Reddy documented this with more than a hundred types of expressions in English Um, which he estimates account for at least 70% of the expressions we use for talking about language. So in this conduit metaphor, where ideas are objects, things that we pass to each other through this conduit mechanism of language, um, it's hard to get that idea across to him. I gave you that idea. Your reason came through to us. It's difficult to put my ideas into words. When you have a good idea, try to capture it immediately in words. Try to pack more thought into fewer words. You can't simply stuff ideas into a sentence any old way. The meaning is right there in the words. Don't force your meanings into the wrong words. His words carry little meaning. The introduction has a great deal of thought content. Your words seem hollow. The sentence is without meaning. The idea is buried in terribly dense paragraphs. Once you hear a list like that, you realise that we do very much rely on those (laughs) stores and transfers, Matt's saying. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. But we rely on the idea of, especially in the classroom, of the teacher with information that must be transmitted through a conduit to students. Um, And then we look for a variety of conduits. We're always looking at ways to transfer those ideas better and more effectively um, and with less confusion. Or, as we'll see, if we come from a more constructivist approach, um, the idea that we'll transmit things which learners can then assemble or unpack and, and consider the nature of themselves. 
but it's still reliant on this underlying conduit metaphor that Reddy argues is underlies almost all of our discussion about language and learning. Um, the other ones, the other metaphor that we find everywhere is directional metaphors, and this goes directly to science, which I'm quite fascinated by. So so-called purely um, intellectual concepts, like the concepts in a the scientific theory, are often, this is me quoting again, perhaps always based on metaphors that have physical and or cultural basis. So the high in high energy particles is based on more than up. Uh, with, they've just looked at how the language of high in high spirits, um, I, you know, I've climbed up from my depression, that notion that up and down where up is good and down is bad, where up is energetic and down is slow, um, features that metaphor features in almost all of our language patterns and metaphors that we use to describe our own emotions and actions. And they point out here that it's being applied when we talk about high energy. Linked with heaven being up, I mean, absolutely. That, yeah, well, and um, that Matt's, Matt's saying linked with heaven being up, that if we look at the way we talk about, this is me going off on a tangent because I find it fascinating. If we look at the way we talk about directions right and left, obviously most of us should be familiar with the idea that sinister, the Latin for left, is associated with left-handedness um, and left in general. And that has shaped not just language, but very much educational practice. Um, you know, people being forbidden to write with their left hands, etc. So moral judgments and theological concepts being attached to directionality. Forward to the right, exactly, but also think about human rights, right? Now, in, in French, fascinatingly, it's exactly the same word too. So we've got your universal human rights, that's, that's droit, just like going a droit to the right. So that directionality and rationality and rights and goodness and morality, they're built into this embodied sense of directionality. Fascinating. Well, for me anyway, I'm not sure everyone's idea of fascinating and seven in the morning is embodied cognition metaphors, but it should be. Wouldn't it be a better world and, and a higher world? Mm, maybe not. So um, yeah, high energy particles is based on more than up. The high and high level functions, as in physiological psychology, is based on the idea that rational is up. High functioning, good functioning, better functioning, rational functioning. The low in low level phonology is based on the idea that low is bad. <laughs> Matt says, no, the world wouldn't be a better place if we all cared very much about embodied cognition metaphors at seven in the morning. Matt is wrong, people. Wrong on metaphors. Uh, so I'm going to stop and play the news. And when we come back, we're going to look at a, a couple of metaphors um, just to see how using them in the classroom, then we're going to get more complicated, but using these two in the classroom would tie to a lot of ideas that many of us, including me, tend to scoff at about um, resilient learners or how we're modeling learning in the classroom. Okay, first the news from Gail Glenn, the indefatigable Gail Glenn. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. This is your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. For the second year in a row, Christmas lunches and concerts in schools have been cancelled in Wales and Scotland. As the UK's Covid infection rates continue to rise, it's feared that schools in England and Northern Ireland will face a similar situation. Scottish councils are following local advice and advising schools to opt for virtual concerts instead. A spokesperson for Highland Council said, the Highland Council recognises the positive impact that concerts and other events have on the wider health and development of children. However, COVID-19 remains present in our schools and communities, and therefore Highland schools have been advised that large events beyond a class should not take place indoors or for a live audience. The chairman of Kent Association of Head Teachers, Alan Brooks, 
has highlighted a shortage of teaching assistants across the county. He said, It is becoming increasingly difficult to recruit teaching assistants and support our staff within schools. One of the things schools used to achieve was to offer flexibility in terms of holiday compared to other employers. However, a lot of other companies are offering flexible hours during the pandemic, like supermarkets, which means there is more competition. Money is an obstacle in terms of taking jobs. Local authorities and schools are not blind to that. It's hard to see how we can do a huge amount in terms of salary increase without more help. Becoming a teaching assistant is a worthwhile job. Working with young people, you can see what you are doing is helpful and relevant, most often helping the most vulnerable students grow, which is tremendously satisfying. This has been your daily education news briefing. One of the sponsors of this show is Oxford University Press. If you need support with your phonics teaching, Oxford University Press now has three Department for Education validated programs to help you. Read Write Incorporated Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. To find out more about these programmes and receive support from your OUP expert local educational consultant, visit www.oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. That URL again is www.oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Hi, I'm Tabitha McIntosh. We're back and we're discussing metaphor. Uh, my mother, as ever, is a silent partner in the classroom, uh, classroom, living room, and she is saying, why haven't you talked about blank slates yet? We will get there, mother. We will get there. Just take your time. Um, <laughs> Matt saying, love hearing Marxist reading out adverts. I think one of the things about um, podcasting generally is the deep weirdness of stopping and plugging a product even one as fantastic as Oxford University Press's Letters and Sounds, leading radio Marxists in Dorset. Sorry, Tom, I won't say things like that again. Right, where were we? We were discussing uh, Lecoff and what's-his-face, can't remember the other name, Lecoff and Johnson's um, 1980 discovery of the field, discovery, creation of basically the field of metaphor studies. And it is, it's been a consistent theme in um, educational research not the sitting people in the lab and seeing how well they can recall things after two minutes sort of educational research, but the kind I like, which is the sort of sitting around thinking about words, terribly useful kind. Um, but it does have profound implications for classroom practice, as I will be telling you at length. And also it changes and has shifted over the course of fashions in education. So my mother's beloved blank slate, we've been talking about that a lot this weekend and, and over the last few days. The blank slate is not actually the metaphor that Locke uses. Um, Locke uses a technology that's consistent with, with Locke's society, which is paper. He, he says that we're like blank pieces of paper upon which we write. The blank slate model is, is from cultures that use blank slates much more frequently. So it's, you know, ancient Greece, Aristotle uses the metaphor. So poor old Locke, stuck with the tabula rasa metaphor forever, when really he's talking about blank paper. Anyway, we've just discussed how um, directional metaphors are embedded in just about everything we say, but also how the conduit metaphor, or conduit for a more American pronunciation, is, is completely embedded in the way we talk about imparting ideas and what we're doing in the classroom. Um, then I said, just before the ad, we were going to talk about the implications of using different metaphors for discussing minds in general and how that is modelled for students or affects the nature of the learning happening. Now, the example that Lakoff and Johnson give is the mind is a machine versus the mind is a brittle object. So in those metaphors that are embedded in the idea of the mind is a machine, the examples they give are we're still trying to grind out the solution to this equation. My mind just isn't operating today. Boy, the wheels are turning now. I'm a little rusty today. We've been working on this problem all day and now we're running out of steam. As opposed to brittle object, 
Her ego is very fragile. You have to handle him with care. He broke under cross-examination. She's easily crushed. The experience shattered him. I'm going to pieces. His mind snapped. So their analysis of this, the, the implications of this, are these metaphors specify different kinds of objects. They give us different metaphorical models for what the mind is and thereby allow us to focus on different aspects of mental experience. The machine metaphor gives a conception of the mind as having an on-off state, a level of efficiency, a productive capacity, an internal mechanism, a source of energy and an operating condition. Whereas the brittle object metaphor is not nearly as rich and is very limiting. It allows us to talk only about psychological strength. However, there are a range of mental experiences that can be conceived of in times of either metaphor. The examples we have in mind are these. He broke down. The mind is a machine. He cracked up. The mind is a brittle object. Now, again, that does sound like abstruse concerns of English scholars. So what I'm going to do is take us to um, where this field of metaphor studies and education has ended up, which is far more interesting. And I think and I hope you'll agree a very valid way of looking at what we're doing, um, the assumptions we're bringing to the classroom revealed by our metaphors and embedded in our metaphors. So the million dollar question is, of course, does it matter what metaphors we use? Uh, so the example I'm going to use here to say what's the impact of metaphors and is not a learning one at all. It's some work I did on um, the history of this imaginary silver bullet that killed the king of Haiti in 1820 when he shot himself, but which didn't actually exist in text until 80 years later when an American journalist um, invented it, essentially invented the story. So for the next 100 years up until now, everyone says the king of Haiti died by shooting himself with a silver bullet. So what I did was look at how metaphor of the silver bullet is being used in contemporary discussion of Haiti. I'll just read you some examples. Aid agency Plan Canada calls the education of young children the closest thing to a silver bullet to heal what ails Haiti. Times suggest that tourism may be a silver bullet solution to Haiti's perpetually underperforming economy. Yet many things are also not a silver bullet. Cholera vaccine isn't Haiti's silver bullet. Debt cancellation is not a silver bullet. Mobile financial services were never going to be a silver bullet. There's no silver bullet for Haiti's energy needs. And also peanut based energy bars are not a silver bullet for childhood malnutrition. The United Nations notes that there is no silver bullet for cholera. By the way, the United Nations was what brought cholera to Haiti. So uh, Matt is saying that they always thought silver bullets were about vampires. I'm restraining, I'm breaking my fingers not to break off and give you a history of the silver bullet. But essentially, silver bullets in the 19th century map were associated with witches and sometimes with ghosts. They're associated with werewolves only with um, in the middle of the, the early part of the 20th century with the kind of American studio versions. So silver and vampires, yes, but silver bullets, meh. Um, why does that matter that everyone's using the silver bullet for Haiti? Well, because consistently Haiti's being represented as a Caribbean monster of exceptional dysfunction that be cured with a silver bullet if only one could be found. Um, if, if you're always using a silver bullet, your country is always a werewolf, a vampire, a ghost. Or here's um, an article by Adina Wise from the first wave of the pandemic. Military metaphors distort the reality of COVID-19. The rhetoric of war implies a heedless approach. So as she points out, she does the same thing I've just done, just go through the headlines looking for metaphors. In recent weeks, a flurry of headlines about healthcare workers treating people with COVID-19 have utilized a wise array, wide array of military metaphors. Doctors are fighting on the front lines without sufficient ammunition. They are battling the enemy. They are at war. And as she says, we aren't at war and we have certainly not enlisted. We are doctors. What we are doing is working extraordinarily hard to keep our patients alive. To adopt a wartime mentality is fundamentally to allow, to allow for an all bets are off, anything goes approach to emerging victorious. And while there may well be time for slapdash tactics in the course of weaponized encounters on the physical battlefield, this is never how one should endeavor to practice medicine. And we saw that military triage emergency medicine logic play out in a lot of things that um, President Donald Trump, for example, would suggest from the stage. Anything goes, let's not worry about medical trials. Let's experiment with them. Um, anything that comes to hand, because this is a war and in war, the normal rules don't apply. Yes, uh, that chap there saying 
choice of metaphor reveals unconscious bias. Well, there's that. But I think what everyone's saying here is that it actually has real world implications and changes to practice to what's happening. So as this journalist, this doctor journalist is arguing, when you use military metaphors, when, when your governing bodies are using military metaphors, by using them, they are allowing and encouraging um, tactics which are completely inappropriate for, say, research-based medicine. That's her argument here. But, but using that metaphor is not, is not merely an unconscious bias or an empty gesture, that it has actual implications. Same thing, of course, with the war on drugs in the 90s, 1980s and 1990s in the United States. When you depict it as a war, then wartime strategies, tactics, logics become necessary and part of it. It literally changes what you're doing. Okay, so let's turn to education because fascinating as all that was, I'm sure you're still thinking, eh, how does that affect me? And what about my kebab metaphor? Is learning a kebab? Because I'd really like it to be. Um, some metaphors are so pervasive in the way we think about education that once you notice their presence, you see them everywhere. Um, Dr. James Shea said yesterday on Twitter that the humble triangle, humble triangle is everywhere. Don't forget the triangles. The triangles are a metaphor, but then they start to influence the things they are comparatives for. They are edu Bermuda triangles where research goes to die. I like that. Um, lovely article by Elaine Botha. <laughs> Matt saying that they're going to make a triangle of triangles. Matt and I DM each other um, visual metaphors that we hate. It's, it's one of our hobbies. <laughs> Tube maps will be coming up with Matt's comments on them. Um, lovely article by Elaine Botha that, uh, called Why Metaphors Matter in Education that I'll link at the end of the show. Um, and she's reflecting on the state of the field. I think this is written in 2020. And she says there's a widespread recognition of the fact that metaphors play a significant aesthetic, ornamental and, and pedagogical role, not only in literature, but in education. Um, but this positive appreciation does not necessarily differentiate between the different ways those metaphors function in diverse levels on education. So um, we are going to look at some of the ones she pulls out. Um, <laughs> uh, it does not recognise that metaphor and analogy fulfil more than instrumental but indispensable role in mediating the acquisition of new knowledge. Her argument here is the metaphors we choose are directly drawn from constructivist or descriptivist or various forms of education that when we use them we're both reinforcing those modes of education um but so revealing a bias as that chap there said but also it shifts the nature of what we think we're doing in the classroom so um this one she says teaching based on positivist and objectivist assumptions assumes that the body of knowledge to be transmitted to the student is dead this means that the student passively receives the body of knowledge without taking responsibility for interactively appropriating the knowledge as his or her own. Bias is revealed very much in the choice of metaphor there. I don't think that direct instruction and knowledge-rich advocates think of themselves as laying out bits of corpses to children. Here, the dead world of language. And yet clearly her constructivist bias um, is, is presenting knowledge that way. Knowledge is just dead stuff that we give the children and fill them up with. It, all dead white guys. Absolutely. In fact, dead white guys come up. You can see these metaphors amassing in the background in people's language choices. Um, so instead, uh, Lecoff, Johnson, Turner exam proposed the existence of conceptual metaphors. And here's where we go to the ones that go with constructivist learning. Now, Claire Seeley and um, Memnion put two very different metaphors forward in um, <laughs> metaphor, yeah, put two very different metaphors forward in my, in my mentions yesterday when we were talking about this. Claire is, is directly addressing that idea of a dead body of language. And she says, some people hate the metaphor of delivery because they say it ignores the role of the learner in constructing meaning. But, she points out, once something is delivered, you still need to decide what to do with it. Use the milk on cereal, hot chocolate, bechamel, pancakes, throw it away. But without the initial delivery, you wouldn't be able to make any of these. Delivery isn't the end of the process, but it is the beginning. So we're relying on that conduit metaphor there in each instance. But in this case, Claire is pointing out that the, the knowledge isn't dead. It's, it's essentially ingredients with which you can then construct a recipe. So she's, with the use of her metaphors, combining 
um, just like both models of learning there. Now, Memnion put forward the jigsaw puzzle metaphor and said, of all the learning metaphors, the one that resonates most strongly with me is the jigsaw puzzle, putting the knowledge pieces together to see the bigger picture. The great thing about jigsaws is they force you to think to make connections. So they're challenging as well as fun. I think the role of the teacher, a bit like parent and child, is to help students put the puzzle together, but always to hold back where necessary, giving space for the student to make connections themselves. It's not just about reward, the great feeling you get from figuring something out for yourself, but about building knowledge and strengthening schemas. So there's a necessary tension at the heart of the process. Some students will need more input, some less, depending on how easy slash challenging they're finding the puzzle, but the group as a whole should certainly need less input if teaching is going well and the bigger picture is starting to appear. Um, that, yeah, lifting words off the page, says Mabel, excellent point. The, the issue there with using jigsaws as metaphors is I, I can see very much there this constructivist learning where we, we're handing out learning, but it's a tool with which to, or pieces of a puzzle, which we put together to, to end with our curriculum or our you know learning objectives or what we're supposed to know but of course with jigsaw puzzles we actually start and always have the final picture in front of us that's how we do it We're, we are puzzling things out but we start with the final picture so this metaphor is capable of being hacked completely for a variety of purposes <laughs> mabel says as opposed to barking at it we could try that mabel I could try blowing whistles at puzzle pieces and asking them to assemble themselves. I, yeah, it would, it would be a way to pass at least five minutes of my Monday. Um, so, uh, and then, and then Memnion, again, because loves this metaphor, then builds in current ideas about working memory and cognitive load um, and what the curriculum content is of the bigger picture. So, that points to the idea, and this is something Zoe Ensa is always coming back to, that a lot of the ways we think, the maps we make, um, the visual metaphors we use, all the, these linguistic metaphors we use are very useful for us. So this is obviously a very useful way for Memnion to process his way of thinking about what's happening in the classroom and how knowledge is transmitted and the relationship between the teacher, parent and the child. But that, that one's not transferable to anybody else necessarily. Right? That, that one's a map, another metaphor, of Memnion's journey through pedagogy and thinking. So Ollie, Ollie Cav and I yesterday discussed path metaphors. Um, James Hanscom wrote an entire guide for his sixth form um, academic teaching squad about learning as a journey, learning as a metaphor, teacher as troubadour, um, which is beautiful. If you get a chance to look at that, do have a look at it. So it's taking the metaphor and running with it. Um, and so Ollie Cav pointed out that um, the journey, the idea of the source, and then the path, and then the goal, is an image schema and one of the main pre-linguistic principles we all come up with in understanding how the physical world works, and we simply can't do without it. Saying so we cannot do without that journey metaphor, and that that's somehow that's a pre-linguistic metaphor that comes from our experience of being embodied hominids, learning to, to walk and speak and think. Um, the one issue with that, applying it to learning, is that, as we'll see when I get to other countries, not all language families use that metaphor of journey or path or leading along the path to describe what's happening when you learn or what's happening when you teach. Um, Andrew Jay uh, said his favourite metaphor, you know when you're at a training session and the chirpy presenter asks you to represent your insights with a tree, with a picture, draw a tree, connected ideas, tree. Growth and change, tree. Strong base, tender shoots, tree. Works every time. Now the tree is completely different to the source path goal image that Ollie Cavs discussed there. Because of course the tree don't go anywhere, does it? It's not going along a path. But as Andrew points out, it, it is going somewhere. It's going up or outwards. Um, but it's a profoundly static metaphor speaking of static metaphors we're going to look at some mixed ones later and my um my stepkids went to a school whose motto was ashmead gives the children two good things the first is roots the other wings okay picture that if you're one of those people who pictures things or just think about it you've got roots and you've got wings what are you 
You're a bird that can't go anywhere with like your feet encased in concrete blocks. <laughs> terrible, terrible, terrible metaphor. And indeed, it wasn't a very good school. So, yeah. Um, let's go to the next one. Most hated metaphors. Um, nice thing from, from the article I was just reading. She said, the foundational nature of metaphors is that they carry ideological freight, which is, of course, a metaphor. Uh, they're trains with freight. So when we look at these most hated metaphors, let's take apart what ideological work they're doing and what assumptions they're embedding. Uh, <laughs> Matt says, the only thing that should be a tube map is the tube map. And Matt, you actually got into an argument with someone who was very committed to the tube map yesterday and thought that it had real and definite useful meaning and was not just metaphor. They did argue with you. They were salty, very salty, Matt. Um, I hate tube map metaphors. Matt hates tube map metaphors. Um, but this learning is a journey. What's interesting with the tube map is that it's very it's self-contained, right? You're traveling around the circle line or trying to make connections between different lines. And it you don't go anywhere in the end. I, mean, I suppose you do. But if the tree grows up, the journey through the forest, or the troubadour metaphor, you go on, you know, your learning journey through through the learning rainforest or whatever metaphor we've gone into. Um, if you're using the one Mark Enser used just the other day in Time Z, an article in Time Z, you're baking sourdough. So there's beginning of a product and there's an end product with processes along the way. But um, but a tube, it's just underground hell, quite frankly. Um, Chris Hildrew says, uh, I collect terrible and satirical edgy metaphor tweets. Here are four of my favorites. Some of them are satire and some of them are genuine. Can you tell the difference which? And um, I'll link that one for you guys. It has got what I think probably all of us have seen at some point, um, our least favorite thing of all time, the learning bicycle. In the learning bicycle, the front wheel is the teacher wheel. The back wheel is the student wheel. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the seat is the teacher seat, but then somehow lots of, there's more seats behind it in some kind of hideous nightmare version of a bicycle upon which all the students sit. The learning gear and the tools, um, the problem is the handles. The question is, I don't even understand what this visual metaphor is supposed to mean in the end. But a bit like Memnion's jigsaw puzzle, whoever created this has clearly thought long and hard about what works for them in terms of visualizing what's going in, um, in the classroom. What's really crucial, I think, is to not assume that those metaphors are transferable to anybody else. Um, one that is absolutely true, the learning kebab. So there's a, a lovely picture of the skewer and it's got a tomato. That's the plenary. I'm starting at the end, at least 10 minutes. <laughs> the point, the pointy part is the learning intention, which just makes me think about inadvertently stabbing yourself in the face with learning intentions, which, you know, maybe maybe that's a metaphor that works for my style. Um, lots of those, but um, here early years, Alex says, I saw one the other day, not my metaphor, schools are vaccines for ignorance which is a particularly fraught one at the moment. Uh, Mabel here in the comments is saying the candle burning itself out, teachers consuming themselves. Yeah, I think we, uh, hopefully if you haven't seen that, don't go look it up. It's the most disturbing and triggering image if you're a teacher. It's a candle bending over um, and dripping its wax onto children, into children as, as waxy containers. So like, like the giving tree, like Shel Silverstein's giving tree, our job is to allow ourselves to be destroyed and used and consumed entirely by what we do. And when people valorize that kind of image, when, when it turns up on best teacher or, you know, a mug or hero, superhero, action teacher, all of which are metaphors, they have real implications about our working practice and the hours we're expected to work and the unpaid labor we're supposed to do. And the, the things we're supposed to buy. Metaphors matter, people. When you see an evil metaphor in the wild, <laughs> smite it. Um, Dan Phillips says, I liked this one, of lesson planning and schemes of work he's seen. It's a it's a plan, not a straitjacket. What are you saying when you use a straitjacket metaphor when talking to teachers? But that don't worry, you're not in an asylum, but you might be if we carry on with this CPD. It's a plan uh, or that we're all collectively in institutions with um, in, in psychotic states that we need the medication of curriculum planning. I, it's a weird one. 
if you see a straight jacket metaphor, I would question your SLT seriously. Um, and then ones I just found in the wild on Twitter, I just typed um, teaching is a, so Dr. Mark, these are just from the last couple of weeks. Dr. Mark Anderson says, teaching is a basket of skills, which I'm not sure skills can go in a basket, right? I mean, objects. So it's another container metaphor. Remember, we're looking at ideological freight. So why basket? Basket is artisanal. Basket is, um, it's, it's defiantly non-mechanistic. So it's a rejection of the mind as computer model. Um, and instead, mind as, you know, peasants collectively gathering things in the village or basket of, of skills that we can take to grandma's house. Um, Dr. Brad Johnson says teaching is a team effort. Lean in and lean on each other so that everyone succeeds. That's specifically an image related to American football and the huddle, right? Where everyone puts their hands in at the middle. So I can tell, I mean, that's hyper-aggressive, hyper-masculinist, competitive, um, learning is competition. There are winners and losers. We are working together because a team, a team, when you put it in a sporting context, has outcomes, has winners and losers, which has an enormous impact on how you're thinking about education altogether. Did I discover American Edgy Twizzler? Yes, Matt. When Unfortunately, when you just type in searches, you don't get sensible English Twitter, which has spent two weeks discussing broccoli and original sin. Instead, you get football metaphors. Uh, Dr. Tijuana Giles says, teaching is a juggling act. We remind them to stay balanced and support them in building in short breaks. I don't actually understand that one because when, when Dr. Tijuana Giles says teaching is a juggling act, I assume she means all the things I'm juggling, the information about the children, managing behavior, um, you know, handing out equipment, running the visualizer. But <laughs> uh, Alex has just said something, I'll come back to it in a second. But, uh, but no, we need to remind them to stay balanced. So in fact, teaching is teaching juggling. And then we need to support our trainee jugglers in building in short breaks. Uh, yeah. One thing I would say is that maybe you should workshop your met, run your metaphors by friends first and, and see if they're working. Because some of them, learning as kebab, learning as bicycle, learning as teaching juggling, where what we're doing is primarily teaching children to take breaks. I'm not sure that works very well. Alex is saying teaching, as I said yesterday, is necromancy. Well, actually, Alex, you anticipated that academic paper I was reading from, because she says, in uh, the delivery of information model, like the non-constructivist position, what you're doing is, is raising knowledge from the dead and transmitting it through the medium of, I don't know, Ouija boards to your learners. So it's all coming together. Uh, Sam Strickland, this one's not silly. And of course, uh, Sam is, is one of our respected educators, big on British Edu Twitter. Planning lessons as opposed to planning and sequencing learning is a false pathway so many of us have been led down. So there the metaphor is not just that um, journey, destination, origin metaphor that, that as we've seen underpins almost everything that we talk about when we're talking about progress even, right? But this one specifically is a labyrinth, isn't it? Or a maze. Um, a false pathway so many have been led down evokes images of minotaurs or confusion or anything like that um, and makes it much more much more like um, so many have been led down is tying us directly to old school teacher training it's tying into a particular discourse so I was quite taken with that hacking of the, the journey metaphor into the maze metaphor uh, Laura Davis Vaughan another American says Learning is a circle, not a straight line. I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, Matt's saying straight from the path and you shall be lost. What you were discovering, Matt, is that um, once you've found your metaphor, you can run with it for page after page after page. Just keep picking out details like you were Virgil or someone with an epic simile and, uh, and explaining how this. Learning is like a deer at the edge of a cliff. And the deer is the children who are scared. And when you, the teacher, approach the deer with the sword of knowledge and intent, the deer, you can go and go. I did not read your blog the other day about the dinner. Beware the moon, says Mabel. Yes, beware the moon, always. Uh, so alternative metaphors, 
ones that if we, you remember how we said the, the football metaphor is fundamentally built on competition, the idea there'll be winners and losers, that there'll be like violent conflict um, that that you have to work through. The journey destination, there's a start, there's an end point. War metaphors encourage all kinds of, of strange ways of um, not being methodological or ethical in what you're doing. So I thought I'd read you someone's attempt at coming up with a womanist metaphor instead of a masculinist metaphor. Up to you what you think of this one. So in her review titled Thinking Constructively with Metaphors, Yob reviews the work of Thea Bacon. Now Thea Bacon provides us with a, I'm just reading a stimulating example of the way these types of assumptions are at work in the process of teaching. In this work, Thea Bacon comes, um, compares two different metaphorical approaches to teaching and learning. She applies the metaphor of a quilting bee to the realm of teaching and learning. So a quilting bee, for those of you who aren't um, US or crafty, like Can't Have Kitty or so many of you, is many people together in a room, normally women, um, collectively engaged in individual projects. So they're all doing, doing individual squares of the quilt in order to put together the the quilt of knowledge in between them. So individual effort in the process of a larger task. Let's carry on with this one. She applies the metaphor, da, da, da. In this metaphor, she draws heavily on constructivism, critical thinking, and a collection of feminist, womanist, and third world thought. The quilt that emerges from the combined activity of quilters is the accumulated and shared experience of a group of thinkers. A quilting bee is a place of action. The metaphor conjures up a number of associated commonplaces knowing that knowing is a social enterprise, that human beings are contextually embodied and they come to know through their embodied knowledge and minds. This means that reason or mind is not the sole maker of knowledge, but the practical hands-on experience, emotion and intuition also play a role. So she contrasts that with the symbol of um, Rodin's sculpture, The Thinker. Here is a white male, told you we're going to come back to the white males, Matt. Here is a white male, solitary, detached, passive, representing the ideal knower, scholar, or man of letters. When these contrary grounding metaphors are applied to classroom approaches, very different scenarios emerge. The thinker predisposes one to imagine a classroom of quiet order, silent work, minds focused on abstractions, pupils sitting at desks with open books. I love it that that's presented as a bad thing, given where we are in British education at the moment. The horror! Children in silence! Um, as opposed to the quilting bee, which conjures up a classroom full of talk, movement, manipulatives, experimentation, group projects, maybe some laughing, certainly some interaction with learning materials and each other. Uh, <laughs> Matt's saying it sounds like hell. Well, yeah, I mean, I think Matt, um, you know, and your your coworker and um, fearless leader, Adam Boxer, uh, spend half your lives explaining why why manipulatives and and constructivist learning is not what you are going for in a science classroom. Why that metaphor does not work for your classroom or your practice, and um, and why using those kinds of metaphors has not resulted in good outcomes for teachers or students. Right? But it's a metaphor so alien, this quilting bee metaphor is a metaphor so alien to the way we do things that the initial temptation is just to laugh at it, right? Which, which is understandable when we come across metaphors that, that aren't, that we're not used to, their, their metaphoric status, the artificiality of them becomes very clear. They're not those metaphors that we're so used to using that we don't see them anymore, like the conduit metaphor. Um, which I kind of, to go to the angry UK physics teacher who was who's angrily angrying at me yesterday, I'd say that the cultural specificity and contingency of our metaphors goes unnoticed in a speech community. How do they shape our understanding of teachers, students and classrooms? What angry UK physics teacher who's from Russia said to me yesterday was, are metaphors in education the sole property of the middle class British who demonise any immigrant teacher who dares pop their head and their opinion onto Twitter, but get their language not precise? Um, I feel that their, um, their, their anger was a little bit misplaced, but the frustration they're talking about there is very, very real. Because the next thing we're going to talk about is how a lot of the assumptions we're making about how education metaphors work, how we have this universal idea of, of journeys and conduits um, 
where metaphor and language are conduits for objects of meaning that we pass to each other, et cetera, et cetera, baskets of skills, baskets of knowledge, computer, all of those models. They're very, very, very specific to our language family. So I looked up some Russian ones um, just, just for the angry teacher. When you learn, your mind becomes sharp. That's a, a Russian saying. Eggs cannot teach a hen. That's a saying for shut up children, right? Like the, the children have nothing to teach you. Eggs can't teach a hen. And knowledge is strength. So they're embodied metaphors again. Um, I'm not going to make large statements about Russia because I just pulled those three ones. But we can see that they're weaponized in terms of sharpness, strength. So very much metaphors of, of struggle and conflict and honing weapons there. Now, here we get to the fascinating bit. There's a wonderful website that I'll link to called Metaphors of Learning in Different Languages, where you can click on um, several language families, Russian, English and German, French and Spanish, Romanian, Czech, Lithuanian, Hebrew, Arabic and Farsi. Um, and I'm going to look at some of those are Japanese because they talk, they point to very, very different classroom practices based on the underlying metaphors that govern um, the way we our language for learning and teaching. So the, the one we use, learn, is um, from Germanic and it fundamentally comes from um, a language family meaning to keep track, to trace, to look into, to investigate um, with the root word meaning to track a line or a groove which takes us right the way back to underscore really, to trace a line. So their analysis there says the origin of the word entails a passive and an active meaning, both to leave traces, but also to track and investigate. You'll notice that's if that's the language of ploughing, it's the language of um, scoring things, it's the language of progress from A to B. Um, the teacher is both leading that, but also it's something that the learner is, that's being embedded into the learner. So that would go to our sort of lock, blank piece of paper and such. There's implicit spatial associations are built into that one. However, so the Japanese root metaphor for learning is to imitate. So that I'm not going to attempt to um, pronounce the words properly, but it's man manabu from the Chinese maneru, meaning to imitate. So whereas German language families have teaching as drawing a line, as, as essentially, if we think of it as a plough, training a horse to draw a line, or but also to investigate to draw your own line, the Japanese root metaphor is imitation of the teacher, which completely changes the role of the learner and the teacher in that scenario, right? The teacher is the expert, the student imitates. Like knowledge is all adherent in the person at the front of the classroom, and student practice is to model what you're doing after them. But it's not an active learning process, well, it's, imitation is active, but very, very different to the idea of ideas and information and knowledge as manipulable cognitive objects. Um, in Czech language, the root metaphor is um, to tame, to acclimate, to habituate, which I really like because it seems like in the Czech language, children are wild animals that need to be domesticated. Um, so the idea that there's like wild energy that, that has to be brought into line and parameters drawn and all about management and roles and learning, but very little there. In fact, nothing at all about imparting knowledge. So the first one is a directional metaphor, the German one about making people walk in a line, about drawing lines. Second one is um, imitation so that you replicate and habituate what the person at the front is doing. And, and this one is children are crazy and you just need to get them to settle down. Um, Lithuanian, the underlying metaphor is uh, to be able. And then my favourite um, is, the, I've said two things my favourite. That's the thing, guys, you should know I have lots of favourites. I'm a magpie like this, and we're nearly done here. Um, in the Romance languages, it all comes from the Latin um, apprender, which, like, so, approne, uh, prone. In French, the root metaphor there is to seize, to grasp, to take. So rather than imitating, or rather than being tamed, in the Romance languages, coming from, deriving from Latin, learning is something you seize with both hands, right? Comprehend, apprehend, you take, you seize, 
you grab it from your teacher. It's a wrestling match. Um, that makes the learner the completely active object in this situation. All right. Uh, just, just as we go, I'm going to give you um, some of my favourite, again, favourites, technology and learning metaphors. Um, I did this as a Twitter thread a while ago. Just did a Google book survey looking for nouns that followed the, the phrase, the brain is like, hey, now obviously, English fans, that's a simile, but they're still underlying metaphors. 1869, the brain is like a palimpsest. That's um, a manuscript, a vellum manuscript that's been scraped clean and written on again. Scraped clean and written on again. So that ghost language, ghost words, fragments are always rising to the surface on it. That's essentially taking the blank slate, tabula rasa, um, or Locke's piece of paper, and saying, yeah, it's a piece of paper, but it's a piece of vellum, and, and it's never truly cleaned away. It's full of fragments and, and memories that complicate and confuse. Uh, 1877, um, the brain is like a magnetic compass. 1883, the brain is like a laboratory. And that one's rather lovely. They, they look at different functions. So the, the brain is then conceived of having like different people that work there and different stations and different bits and pieces that we do. The brain is like a church organ, 1906. Um, and then we start getting 20th century technology coming in. The brain is like a receiving set, 1931. The brain is like a radio, 1937. The brain is like a computing machine, 1943. We really are in stuck forever at the moment in the land of, of brains and learning as, as computer metaphors. Um, so that's, you know, that, that happens mid-century. And the brain is like a telephone exchange, 1943. Um, David Deutsch, apparently in the beginning of infinity, highlights how we've historically used the most advanced technologies to describe the brain. So hydraulic systems, when we had those. I did an entire research MA on um, the language of steam engines, um, the emergent steam engine technology being used by 1790s authors to describe and imagine the functioning of the brain. For a while there, it was a war between children's minds and education of fields in which we plant seeds, your tree agricultural metaphor, turning into an industrial revolution what we need to do is train children's minds to manage and regulate themselves. We give them a source of fuel and energy, and you can see very easily how that works. But a rather beautiful moment there where we shift from agricultural pre-industrial metaphors to industrial metaphors. And that's not neutral. It's not just because what's hanging around. Because what happens, what starts to happen in the 1790s, is we start to have call for mass education of the newly massed industrial classes. It is non-coincidental that the language of the steam engine and the language of machinery and the language of the factory begins to be applied to children um, and children's learning processes as we start trying to talk about educating them in mass industrial ways. Um, yeah, a whole research paper. Ah, oh, Tom, not just a research paper, 120 pages, masters by research. Yeah, see, see what? what fun you can do in English. You can just shoehorn anything in. I'm going to look at steam engine metaphors for 120 pages. And not only will you not stop me, you'll give me a distinction and a scholarship. Thank you. Everyone do English. It's a great subject. Uh, right, that is it. Um, let's see. Oh, let's end on when good metaphors go bad. A couple of mixed metaphors that I found online when I was searching for metaphors being used in the news today. Um, from next week, by the way, I will be running to the 8.30 slot that's advertised, but I'm still stuck on my one hour for now. Uh, VT, whoever that is, says learning is a never ending journey. You can see your work and never be proud of it. But trust me, if you look back, you'll be happy you did it and with what you did in the present in comparison to the past. I don't, if it's a never ending journey, I'm not going to be happy about anything, mate. I'm just going to be really tired and lie down and die. Um, Wisdom and skill user says, that this is my favorite, a new favorite. And the one I'm going to end on, learning is a treasure that will follow its owner everywhere. And we read that again. Learning is a treasure that will follow its owner's owner everywhere. Treasure can't walk, people. I mean, maybe learning is a treasure that's tied to your belt with a rope, and will, like in the mission or something, and um, and you and will drag behind you. Maybe learning is like um, like the chest in Terry Pratchett's novels. 
um, and the trunk rather, and it will run around after you. Either way, treasure's not going to fall. And if treasure's following you, you can't even use it. It's the worst metaphor. So on that note of the worst metaphor, I'm getting like a sad puppy says, yes, like the luggage from Discworld. Exactly. <laughs> on that sad puppy note. Um, and yes, yay, Tom, next week, another 30 minutes of me chatting nonsense about the history of education, linguistics, and whatever other nerdy things I decide to do on a Sunday night. Maybe I'll treat you all to highlights from my 120-page thesis on steam engine metaphors in the 1790s. You'll love it. You'll love it so much. All right. Bye, everyone. It was lovely seeing you on a Monday morning, as I will be seeing you next week as well. Teach well. I'm going back to bed. Goodbye.